Hi everyone, I'm so happy you've joined us this month. Today's episode is very special to me. The conversation you're about to hear is a follow-up on our last episode on finding common ground despite our differences. Have you ever talked with someone who continued to spread information that just isn't true? I definitely have, and it can be frustrating. My frustration with this reached a peak in 2020 when we were locked down and only communicating on social media. It led me to reach out to our next guest, Dr. Tanya Israel. The conversation with Dr. Israel that you're about to hear happened just a few weeks after the 2020 presidential election and a few weeks before the unprecedented January 6th attack on our nation's capital. Clearly, a lot has happened since then, but Dr. Israel's advice seems even more relevant today, having gone through these events in 2020 and beyond and viewing it from this lived perspective. This topic is also a huge part of my doctorate work and lifelong mission of finding common ground and healing sharp divisions. It's not something I can solve on my own. These are conversations we all need to engage in and take time to listen carefully. You'll hear my friend and former co-anchor Katie Barlow in this episode. Katie is a chief legal correspondent in Washington, D.C. and was also an attorney for many years. Her perspectives are so valuable and learning with her on the Words Matter podcast was such a gift. So without further ado, here's Katie and I talking with psychologist and UC Santa Barbara Associate Dean, Dr. Tanya Israel, author of Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. Thanks so much, I'm delighted to be here. So Jen and I are really interested in talking particularly about your book to try and give our listeners some ways to reach across the political divide. But before we do that, let's talk about you and your background and how you got to this place and this wealth of knowledge that you have. You grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia. You graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a double major in psychology and women's studies. And you have a master's degree in human sexuality education and a PhD in counseling psychology, winning awards for your dissertation on training counselors to work with LGBTQ clients. You also are a political advocate and activist, having worked for President Obama's 2008 campaign, and you've worked in democratic politics at the national, state, and local level. So... Tell us a little bit more about your early life and career, and in particular, your experience with dialogue as it relates to people with different political points of views and values. Absolutely. Wow. You've done your homework. That was a fantastic summary of my life right there. I do think that growing up in Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, Charlottesville has now gotten on people's radar in terms of political conflict. I think that growing up there really did help me to be in a situation where I could see multiple sides of things. Charlottesville is a town in the South, in the middle of Virginia, and it's an academic town. It's a college town, but it's also surrounded by rural Virginia. It's got a lot of white people, a lot of black people, people who are very connected to their church, people who are very connected to academia. And there's one public high school. And so everybody's 
connecting together. And I think that that experience was really formative for me. I also grew up there as a biracial Chinese Jewish person, and those identities were not necessarily reflected as much in the community. So I think that I got good at being able to work among people who had differences and also even like internally for myself have differences. So then when I went off to college at the University of Pennsylvania, I was living in a city that was a different kind of environment. I was a women's studies major and I was also in a sorority. And so I had, again, these sort of different perspectives that I was working with and that I was able to navigate among people who had really different experiences and perspectives. Hearing you describe Charlottesville and Virginia that way echoes my experience at the University of Georgia in Athens. Athens is a very similar town with all of those different pieces that kind of create the mixture and the culture around the town in the Deep South even. So let's fast forward to 2016 and talk about how did things change for you and for the country in terms of political dialogue at that time? So the 2016 election, I think, shed light on some of the problems that we were having understanding each other. A lot of people were very surprised at the outcome of the election, which I think really spoke to the fact that they hadn't been hearing things from folks who were on a different side of things. So I was recognizing that. I was recognizing that, you know, a lot of people weren't having those conversations. And I'm a counseling psychologist. I like to help people. So I'm like, okay, what can I do to help? How can I maybe develop some resources? And so I started with something that I call the flowchart that will resolve all political conflict in our country because I am optimistic like that. And part of it was really trying to help people to be intentional about their decisions they were making, about whether or not they're going to have these conversations. And if they decide to have them, how can they do that in order to have an effective conversation, in order to reach their goals? And so that was the beginning of it. But, you know, spoiler alert, the flowchart did not actually resolve all political conflict in our country. And so I then went on to develop a workshop because I thought, well, maybe people need the skills to have dialogue. And I have been teaching skills and communication and helping skills for decades now. And so I created this workshop that focused a lot on listening and how we deal with our emotions and perspective taking. And a couple hundred people went through that workshop and I got a really good sense of, you know, what do people need here? And people were asking for more resources. And that's how the book came about. You talk about helping people reach their goals in conversations. And we are going to get to the flow chart because we're very interested in that. But I want to take two steps back before you even get into the conversation and talk about those goals and how many people are even framing the conversations. I mean, I think a lot of what we want to talk about is preparing for the inevitable holiday discussion around the table and being around friends and family. And understanding that that is maybe a very different goal in conversation, just reaching across the aisle, connection, empathy, understanding, then a lot of people maybe in my bubble in DC or in a lot of bubbles around the country have in a conversation, which is persuasion, or even just argument and winning. So how do you address that kind of not even 
that step zero part of the conversation of how people even enter into the conversation, what their goals are, what their intention is in having that dialogue. So in the workshop, I would always ask people, what brings you here? What interests you about dialogue? And the number one reason people said they were there was because there was somebody in their lives who they wanted to stay connected to, a friend, a family member, and they were having trouble doing that because of political differences. People also certainly said, I want to convince other people. I want to find common ground with other folks. And there were a lot of people who said, I simply cannot fathom how people can think or act or vote as they do. And so they just wanted to get some insight. And it turns out that for any of those motivations, the best way to reach your goal is still to try to understand the other person. So if you want to, even if you want to persuade somebody, you're going to be better off if you can understand where they're coming from so that you can try to convince them in some way from within their perspective rather than from your perspective, because that's just a losing battle. Justice Kagan on the Supreme Court famously has said, you must understand first before you can disagree. And I think that's another version of what you just said. It's also the best way to make an argument and win. But <laughs> coming from the lawyer. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's very important. You talk about common ground a lot, finding the common ground, entering into the conversation. The beginning of that flowchart even says, are you willing to enter into this conversation and listen? If not, this flowchart's not for you. So I think that's really important. But in your book, you say this is a resource and it's for people who are interested in engaging in this dialogue across political lines. You say it won't simply tell you what you should do, but it will help you develop the skills to do it. And the content is backed by scientific evidence and a wide range of human experience to give you practical and well-supported guidance on what fosters this connection and understanding. And I think that's really, really important and gets to your mission here. But as we've discussed, you have known political views, like so many of us and so many of our listeners. This said, going into a conversation, many people know where you stand. And again, as people are talking to their friends and relatives, they know where they stand too, usually on, on political issues. So how do you get started and what are the basics of having a meaningful dialogue with someone who is on the complete opposite spectrum of you and you know this going into the conversation? I want to speak to that idea that we know where someone's coming from going into the conversation, because often we really do think we know that because of something they've posted on social media or the bumper sticker they have, or we know how they voted. And we think that we really understand where they're coming from based on that. It turns out that we tend to have skewed perceptions of people who we consider to be on the other side of an issue. And this is actually, human beings are an imperfect kind of uh, operating system. So we tend to view our own perspectives as being really well-founded and logical and looking out for the well-being of everybody. And we typically see other people, especially those who disagree with us, but even those who agree with us, we see as being, you know, more driven by emotion, irrational, and even unkind. So we have these kind of narrow ideas, and there are decades of research that show that people do this politically also, that people have assumptions 
people have assumptions about where, where Republicans stand on things and where Democrats stand on things, and we are consistently wrong, that we are consistently seeing people as more extreme than they actually are, and most people are actually more toward the middle. So I just want to start with that to say going into these conversations— it's so important that we don't go in with an assumption that we really know where somebody's coming from and we really understand everything about their view and to go in with a sense of curiosity. And that's a very important foundation to really want to know more and assume that we don't already know. So I would say that's the first piece. And the best way to correct those misperceptions that we might have is through listening. And there are certain types of listening that can help us to do that, in fact. And so often when we're listening, we are listening so that we can then come back with our own argument to contrast what somebody is saying. So instead of listening to respond in that way, if we're instead really listening to understand, what we want to do is give somebody some uninterrupted time to speak. And then once we've heard something from them, when we respond, what we want to do is to summarize back what they said, rather than saying our perspective, we basically want to say, oh, so this is what you think. And first of all, that helps to make sure that we really understand where they're coming from, that we got it. And second of all, it helps them to feel understood. And that's going to help that conversation and that connection. John Green, who is the author of the book Paper Towns that came out a few years ago, has a great quote that I actually happened to see just yesterday that said, just remember that sometimes the way you think about a person isn't the way they actually are. And that's a good reminder to the ego <laughs> in all of us. But so I want to talk about several times in your book, you use the phrase both sides. And as you know, that phrase has kind of become a flashpoint in political discourse. And in journalism, in particular, a lot of folks on the outside and the inside of the journalism industry have kind of lambasted both sides ism and always giving equal print or equal airtime or equal weight to the other side of an argument. And there are many folks in the country who would say there aren't two sides. COVID is one example. There's one group that's grounded in truth and facts and science and objective reality, and another that relies on things that are in social media, right-wing television, radio, internet publications. I understand the point about listening, but when we're talking about things like a global public health crisis, what do you say to those that criticize, perhaps rightfully so, this both-sides-ism instinct, particularly in journalists, when we're talking about science and facts? So there are certainly people who are in the public eye around all of this. There are elected officials, there are leaders, and there are journalists who are also public and leading. Most of us are not those people. Most of us are everybody else who's just trying to navigate our connections with our friends and our family and our communities and our schools. So we don't all need to be political strategists. We don't all need to be thinking about how we are framing the argument for the public. So I really wanted to create resources for the most of us. And when we're thinking about having a conversation with somebody we care about, or frankly, even somebody we don't care about, but we just have a goal to persuade or find common ground or whatever it is, or to try to understand, 
it's not as important to think about, well, am I, you know, giving this perspective support by just listening to it? Because if we go back to what's your goal, what are you trying to accomplish through this conversation, then the best thing that you can do is to try to understand somebody else. I think that's so important. Katie and I both come from very, just like you in Virginia. I'm from Ohio originally. I live in Nashville now. We have so many different friends and family members in different parts of the country. But I particularly have loved ones and friends from home who believe in very fringe conspiracy theories like QAnon. And I know I'm not alone. I mean, just this semester, I've had students tell me they're afraid to go home for the holidays because their loved ones believe in this as well. I'll just tell you my experience. I listen and I ask a lot of questions and I try to have this very empathetic approach. But it's really hard to navigate when something is so blatantly false. I would say QAnon before, you know, the media even, the news media really didn't talk about it prior to the past three months that much because they didn't want to amplify it. But now it's just grown and it's growing even more so as we're in this turmoil with the misinformation feeding us. So how do you navigate situations like that where you know it is, is blatantly false and it's very dangerous? I mean, this has led to violence, this movement. How do you talk to your loved ones, talk to your friends about these kind of things? So one of the things that can be challenging is thinking about, okay, well, well, what's the right thing to do here? Because there's information that I have that I feel like could be useful to this person if they would buy into it. But it's the if they would buy into it part that's really crucial. Because if they say something, we go, no, 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 that's wrong. And we are putting people down or we are just putting out there something different, that's actually not going to bring them around. It might feel satisfying to us because we know we're right and we're saying this thing and we feel justified in saying it. And so that really, okay, again, what's your goal? Is your goal to feel justified or is your goal to actually try to help them see a different perspective? So that's where how we manage our emotions and how we connect to people Remember that that might not be the only thing you want to talk to that person about. Maybe you're going to talk about you all care about the kids in the family or there's a TV show that you like together. Have those conversations too. Have those connected conversations and have that connection because that connection is actually what's more likely than anything to bring somebody around. I know a lot of people who are sort of cutting people out of their lives because of disagreements, that's actually the worst thing that you can do if what you're trying to do is to bring people over to your side. Yeah, I always kind of think of it as a long game. Like it's not a one-time conversation. These are conversations I just keep having and keep listening and trying to understand. But I do have to say it's frustrating when you know facts are facts and you, you have researched, as you do as an academic as well, right? You research these things so deeply, but it does, it takes a lot of patience. And I think a lot of this, too, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit to social media. So a lot of this is happening online. A lot of our discourse is happening online. And I'm a really big fan of Sherry Turkle's work, who's a professor and psychologist at MIT. And she wrote something I just want to share and kind of reflect on a bit more, because I think it's very relevant to all this, all that we're talking about. 
Dr. Turkle wrote in her book, Reclaiming Conversation, we have learned that people who would never allow themselves to be bullies in person feel free to be aggressive and vulgar online. The presence of a face and voice reminds us that we are talking to a person. Rules of civility usually apply, but when we communicate on screens, we experience a kind of disinhibition. Research tells us that social media decrease self-control just as they cause a momentary spike in self-confidence. So this means that online we're tempted to behave in ways that part of us know will hurt others, but we seem to stop caring. And so many of us right now are online because of the pandemic, and we have to communicate online, but we don't see the face-to-face. -face. Maybe we can hop on Zoom and maybe that's part of the solution. But how do we tackle these tough topics in this online environment where we know it gets heightened so fast and those bully innate parts of us do come out just to kind of be attacking the other person versus listening in 280 characters or less? I love that quote you shared. I think that that really speaks to a lot of the challenge that we're having right now in social media. I feel like, especially leading up to the election, I thought every post that I saw on Facebook should basically have like four exclamation points after it because that's that's the tone that it feels like. And it was stressful just to look at that. So that's one of the things that we also don't always realize is how our things are coming across. So the bullying piece, it feels when people are receiving it like it's shouting and it might not feel that way to the person who's saying it, but we have such limited information there. I think that these conversations need to take place face to face rather than Facebook to Facebook. And I think really if somebody posts something and you want to respond to it, because you've got a different view. I think the only helpful comment that you can make is, I'm interested in hearing more about where you're coming from. Can we find a time to talk? And take it off of Facebook. And part of it is that when it's in that kind of public realm, it's also really difficult. I remember the days when we used to have conversations with people, and you would have different kinds of conversations with different people. And if there was somebody you already agree with, then you can use the shorthand and the slogans and you can just be like, yeah, that's right. And, you know, rallying each other. And that's a great conversation to be able to have. And we all need that sometimes. But then if you're going to have a conversation with somebody who's not already on the same page, that might be a different kind of conversation where you're not going to make assumptions in what you say. You might have to elaborate more on what your view is. You might have to be more inquisitive about somebody else. And those kinds of things, we can't do that on social media, have those different kinds of conversations because we're just putting one message out there. And a lot of times people are wanting to put one message out there that's in solidarity with other people or that is promoting something. And then it's also hard to put something out there that can give room for a kind of dialogue and inviting in people who have a different view. So I really think we have to take it out of that realm if we want to really understand each other and be more effective. I couldn't agree more with that. And I often do that. I'm like, hey, do you have time to talk? And it sounds very old school. Can we talk on the phone? But there is just so much more dialogue to be had when you can flesh it out and not get so heated and type quickly and hit send and then get like buttons for people who agree with you and are in your little bubble, as you so rightly put. I want to ask about social media 
and the bubble because the way that social media works is we choose to follow people and we can limit people that interact with us in certain ways. Obviously, you can choose not to limit that, but you can create your own very tight bubble within social media. And in particular, in DC, inside the Beltway and the Twitterati, I mean, it is just that was part of the 2016 issue is that people were not looking outside their bubble. And I think the same can be said of self-selection of media, particularly television media, as we're seeing an increase in extremes and preferences reflected in our consumption of media across the country. So I guess I have two questions. One is, how much do you think people are aware of their bubbles and that they're creating and reinforcing these bubbles through social media, through media consumption? And do you think that we are headed towards a more bubbleized society? where people are less interested in having these conversations and more interested in fortifying their belief system, their worldview, which is what we continue to see with media research and self-selection of media consumption. It's hard to see that we're progressing towards a place where these conversations are happening rather than just continuing to create these bubbles and fortify them through social media, through traditional media, all of the above. Do you think there's a future for these conversations or do you think it's slowly diminishing? I think some of this has to do with how people react when they see things or hear things that are contrary to their views. Because it is true, again, as human beings, we tend to pay attention to things that support what we already believe. Right. Confirmation bias. Exactly. That's just what we do. And... One of the things that can be helpful is just being aware of that. But then what do we do about it if we want to change that? So I know some people who will watch TV or listen to radio that's coming from a different perspective because they want to expose themselves to that. Then what happens also with us internally when that happens? Because I also hear people say, oh, when I hear this, my blood pressure rises, my muscles get tight, and it feels really stressful and unhealthy. So that's important for us to recognize about ourselves. I think that's one of the reasons people are creating those bubbles to keep out those other views that upset them. Because people also have a lot of assumptions about what those views mean, and also about the people who might agree with or hold those views. So first of all, managing our emotions around it can be really helpful. Just recognizing that when we hear something that contrasts with what we believe, we might experience that as a threat. And our bodies are built to respond to threat as if every threat is a saber-toothed tiger. Right. And, and honestly, those are not saber-toothed tigers out there. There are people who are expressing different views. And remembering that can be really helpful to say, okay, well, how do I actually get back my equilibrium? And so doing some deep breathing can be helpful. Just remembering this is not a saber-toothed tiger can be helpful. Remembering our motivations for exposing ourselves to other views can also be helpful. And then again, coming at it from that place of curiosity. So not only sort of listening to something and in our minds having that conversation of the thing that we want to say back, but being like, huh, that's so interesting. I wonder how it affects somebody to believe that. I will only push back slightly in that I do think that there are some saber toothed tigers out there. For instance, many of my black and brown friends that are walking down the street and see a red MAGA hat. That is a 
saber-toothed tiger to them in many ways because that threatens their physical existence and can threaten their physical existence and has proven to represent things that are directly in contradiction to their survival. So it's hard to say that that applies across the spectrum. I think there are some saber-toothed tiger triggers, but getting out of the bubble and, and starting to have the conversation in the way that we are, I think is at least helpful in alleviating some of those fears and calling what's not a saber-toothed tiger, not one. But I think also it's important to be honest that there are some saber-toothed tigers out there, and, and that's one of them. I appreciate you bringing that up, and I'd like to speak to that. Sure. Because I certainly think that if somebody's in a situation that feels dangerous or abusive in any way, then don't have that conversation. Get yourself out of there. It's That's an important assessment. And what I see people doing too often these days is making assumptions about that it will be like that, of what that conversation will be. And so they're walking away before they even know for sure. Now, I'll also say that the ability to have dialogue, it's an opportunity, it's not a mandate. So nobody has to force themselves to do this. And so that's where it's always about making those choices and being intentional. So if this feels dangerous, or even if you just feel like, I don't have the energy for this right now. And I'm going to recognize that my goal right now is to be restorative for myself and not to try to create this connection. That's fine. I would just hope people can be intentional about when they do that. And then when they do want to approach somebody who's got a different view, what's the way that they want to approach that? Yeah. I think another thing that's really important that kind of ties to this, though, is this kind of spoon fed mentality. People, seem to lack critical thinking. And I see it more and more as we engage online, but in person as well. It's sourcing. From the journalism perspective, we were talking a little bit about all the different outlets that are really spouting extreme views. That's not helping the conversation at all. But people aren't taking time to even think through other perspectives. And that's something I talk about constantly in my media ethics classes, perspectives, 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 like think about that other person, put yourself in their shoes. But are we getting lost now in 2020? Or is there hope maybe with the pandemic that we will have more empathy and we can see other people's sides? Or is this just, I mean, sometimes I feel a little hopeless, some days I feel a little better, but it's so much of this critical thinking seems to be lost right now. Do you feel that? Yes. And we can help each other with that. So one of my favorite studies that I came across when I was writing the book was asking people, where do you stand on these issues? You know, how strongly do you feel that way? And how much do you understand this policy? And it turns out that when you do that, and you take the people who are especially more extreme on those things, and then you say to them, okay, explain to me how that policy works. Like step by step, how do you actually limit availability of uh, assault rifles? How do you actually do these things? And people have to lay it out step by step. And then you say again, like, how strongly do you feel about this? How well do you understand it? People then become less extreme, not only in their views about an issue, but also in their confidence that they completely get it. And 
And that humility is actually really important in developing that curiosity of wanting to know where somebody else is coming from. It doesn't mean you actually have to change your opinion about something. So it's not actually sort of going over to a different perspective, but it's being a little bit less self-righteous maybe about where you're coming from. So this was a study that was done online. And when I think about like, what does that look like then in person? It looks like asking people to elaborate. Somebody says, oh, you were talking about QAnon. And they say, oh, yes, this is happening. And say, oh, tell me more about that. Like, how does that actually work? We can draw people out more rather than arguing back, um, because that doesn't necessarily help somebody to develop their critical thinking skills, but actually drawing somebody out and asking them and having that conversation may help to dislodge somebody from a really firm, extreme, but not very well supported view. So the more questions you ask, they have to sort it out in their own head, like, wow, maybe this doesn't make sense, or maybe this doesn't add up. I do find that's helpful in just the conversations I'm having is to ask a lot of questions. Where did you read that? And a lot of times, I don't know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let me go look. And it does make them think a little more about this. So that's a really important point. I love that, Dr. Israel, in your answer, you actually embodied, I can see your actor roots because your response was yes and, which is the number one rule <laughs> of improv um, and actually is the perfect embodiment of the ways in which we can have this conversation. Yes and continuing it, not shutting it down, not rejecting it, not being negative at the outset. Yes and. I'm so grateful that you came on to join us. I want to remind our listeners to pick up the book. It's called Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide, Skills and Strategies for Conversations that Work. And we're grateful for your advice and insight. And thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Israel. Thank you so much. It's been great to get to talk to you. And thank you all for listening to Grounded on Purpose. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating, which helps others find us and helps our small team to know that we should keep producing more episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Grounded on Purpose or on our Grounded on Purpose Facebook page. Grounded on Purpose is produced by myself, David Pang, and Lexa Thompson. Audio and video editing by Lexa Thompson. Music is by Jay Loren and Mike Olekshi. Every day is a gift with a new lesson. Join us once a month as we get grounded together on purpose. Thanks again for listening.